Well, brothers and sisters, please take your Bibles and uh, open them to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. This morning, I will address the topic of temptation one last time. And then next week, address the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer. And from there, we will move to 2 Thessalonians. So if you haven't already started reading that little epistle, just a very small book, please start doing so. Read 1 and 2 together so that in the next couple of weeks when we arrive at that place where we begin preaching through that second epistle, you will have a, at least a grasp on what is going on. And it will aid you mightily uh, in understanding the sermon itself. Let's stand together. And before we read God's precious Word, let's ask His blessing upon us. Now, Father, we don't want to be presumptuous or take for granted that just because we open up Your Word that, Lord, it will have its way with us. Lord, we come asking You, Father, to make Your Word effectual. We come asking, O Lord, that You would work in us as Your children this Word that we would be conformed and shaped into the blessed image of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the goal of our salvation. Father, that we would learn and grow in our knowledge. Lord, that we would even have all of our godly desires heightened and increased as we listen to your word preached. Lord, let our hearts truly burn within us as the truth is unveiled. Lord, as we are confronted with it, as we have the opportunity, Lord, to be corrected and humbled under it, Lord, bless us with this word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, beloved, I want to read from verse 13 of Matthew 6, that one petition, that sixth petition. So hear now these words of the Lord Jesus who said, Do not... And and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. You may be seated. This morning, the sermon is going to be all practical. I want to address the misunderstandings that are often conveyed about temptation. And so I have about six or seven ways in which it's common or it's common that, uh, that Christians misunderstand or misuse the, uh, the doctrine of temptation. Now remember the Lord Jesus is teaching us to pray. And He is teaching us that we ought to rest and trust in the strength and the power of our Heavenly Father to do His work and will in us, but yet we are at the same time under His influence to submit ourselves and to humble ourselves and to follow in the way we should go. 
We ought to learn how to pray. We ought to pray. And we should pray rightly. And we should pray rightly. All those things being true. Two points this morning. Various misconceptions about temptation itself. And then the remedy of temptation. Various misconceptions of temptation. And the remedy of temptation. And that's our two main points. What is temptation? Let's first deal with that. What is a temptation? A temptation is a solicitation to break God's moral law. It's a solicitation. It's a provoking to break God's moral law. To disobey Him. To... To act in a way that is contrary to the reality His Word teaches us. For example, I mean, there are, I mean, there are many temptations in the Scriptures recorded for us. Many of them. The most famous being that of Adam and Eve. We see in that original temptation, the very first temptation of man, that the tempter, Satan, comes to... Eve, not to Adam, taking advantage of the situation, taking advantage of the circumstance. It is certainly believed that Adam and Eve had not been created long upon this earth before Satan came to them. That is, they lacked very little experience whatsoever. They were still naive in the experience of life. Walking with God, trusting in God. Yes, they walked with God, but in another real human sense, they have yet to work out much of that truth, understanding, and knowledge. And Satan comes to that, comes to Eve and is able to create in her the temptation to doubt God, to distrust Him, to consider that her life would be better off trusting herself than trusting God. And she took the fruit and she did eat. And turned in that fallen condition and desired that her own husband fall with her and gave him the fruit and he did eat as well. A temptation is a solicitation, a provoking to sin. And we're going to look at how this is unfolded as we address and deal with some of these misconceptions. Now I want to start off with the most obvious misconception. The most obvious one. The most obvious misconception I think there is, is the idea that God is the one that tempts us to sin. Now, why is this so? Well, brothers and sisters, Satan knows that when he understands the frailty of the human condition and mind, he understands our limitations. 
He understands that when we grasp the idea and the understanding and the biblical truth that God is sovereign over all, that God is the great, uh, He is the great orchestrator, creator, manager of all that He has created. It is easy for him to solicit the feeble mind to think that God is the one who has tempted them to sin. He takes advantage of our willingness to pass the buck, to to excuse our responsibility in obedience. We are always desirous to find a reason for our failures, aren't we? Aren't we? We all want it to be something else. If that had not happened, I would not have done this. If you hadn't have said this, I would not have said that. All of the various excuses that we offer, Satan knows that when he can take the sovereignty of God, that precious truth, brothers and sisters, that wonderful truth, of His sovereignty over all things. He can pervert it, He can twist it, and He can use it in the life of the child of God to accuse God of being the source of their temptation. Adam did the very same thing. When God went to Eve... She pointed a finger at the devil. The devil made me do it. He tricked me. And he did trick her. But she was responsible. She should have been very wise to his subtleties, to his lies, to his craftiness. She blamed the devil. When God confronted her husband, Adam, he blamed his wife. He said, God, it's the woman you gave me. And that's been going on ever since, hasn't it? We are so quick to point a finger. Satan realizes this. He knows this. And one of the ways he wishes to bring the believer into sin is to cause them to question God's power and glory. Now, let's turn to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. Because James explicitly deals with this, and he had to. He had to because of the various trials that God's people, the church, was undergoing. And James knew that this was going to be a problem. He knew that it was going to be a temptation to blame God for their own failures and sins. And notice what he says in chapter 1, verse 13. He says, let no one say. Now he says this, because what does a good teacher do? A good teacher addresses the weaknesses, the possibilities, and those various errors that are already circulating among the people of God. And James addresses this with the imperative, let no one say. What he is saying is, do not 
be guilty of this saying. When he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Now, brothers and sisters, notice what James does say. In this verse, he not only says that we ought to refrain and we should forbid these words ever to come out of our lips. But he also gives us a reason not to say them. Notice what he says in verse 13. He says, now I am being tempted by God. Notice what he says. For. What's the four there? The four is there because now James is going to offer a reason. For God cannot be tempted by evil. What is James saying? James says evil has nothing to do with God and God has nothing to do with evil. Those two are incompatible. And because the very nature of God, the very nature of God, I'm not going to get into the theology of the nature of God. You listen to this. But because God is incompatible with evil and evil with God, because in His very essence and His nature, He is pure, He is light, and He is completely without any contamination or pollution, James says evil can have nothing to do with Him, and God has nothing to do with evil. And because God has nothing to do with evil, notice what He goes on to say, and He Himself does not tempt anyone. It is out of the character and nature of God to use evil to solicit sin. Don't say those things. Don't let those words come out of your mouth. Be careful. Put a watch. Put a a, a watch over your tongue. Let me just say this about the character of God, and certainly we'll move on. There are at least three things here that I think are worthy of us to think about. Number one, it's God's power. God's power. God, evil cannot overcome God. God is more powerful than evil. God is more powerful than the evil one, Satan. His power. He can't be tempted by sin. Sometimes, you know what? When we fall into temptation, we feel powerless, don't we? Have you ever felt powerless? And you say, what is this all about? I've never felt more powerless than when I realized how I have harmed my God's name. How I have embarrassed my family. How I've embarrassed my church. Powerless. God's powerful. He's all powerful. He can't be tempted by evil. And he don't have to use evil. He's powerful. Secondly, he's faithful. He's faithful. When God promises to do good, guess what? He's going to do good. When God promises to do good to you, his church, his people, when he promises to be with you, when he promises to, to um, change you, to correct you, to treat you as a son and a daughter, and he knows, he knows what you need before you ask. He, you would not ask for bread and he give you a snake, Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount. He's faithful. 
God's always going to act in consistency to His faithfulness to the promises of the covenant. I'm going to be your God. I'm going to be your Father. You're going to be my people. You're going to be my children. You're going to be my sons and daughters. You're my people. Thirdly, He's merciful. He's merciful. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and we're going to see these things. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. These three attributes are so important. He's merciful. How is He merciful? Because our God knows our limitations. And He is mindful of them. Mercy. Wow, what's mercy? Mercy is the giving of that which is not deserved. Merciful. When you forgive someone, when they've sinned against you ten times, you're tempted to do what? Well, that ten is the tenth strike. It's over for you, Jack. It's over for you. You're done. What does mercy do? Mercy forgives the tenth time. You don't deserve it. But I'm going to give it. Because I'm a merciful person. But that's the way God treats us, right? We deserve to be handed over to the evil one. We deserve to be left in our sins, right? We deserve to let sin have its dominion over us. We deserve to squalor, to, to, to wallow in the squalor of sin. But God's merciful. And He doesn't allow it. Look at 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Paul is writing, and we're going to come back to this passage several times this morning, but just notice what it says about God. Notice those things. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as common to man, and God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. Now you can see, never ever accuse God of tempting you with evil. When we fall into temptation, when listen to me, when, when, when Satan suggests and that's what he does. He just, he just hurls those suggestions. Uh, Paul called them in Ephesians 6 the fiery darts. When Satan hurls those suggestions at you, and then you begin to digest those, those suggestions and delight in them, you have succumbed to temptation. And one of the ways he wants to turn you from God. Now remember, that's what all sin. Sin always turns one away from God. Always. That's why repentance in the Old Testament is seen as a turning from sin back to God. It's because sin turns us away from God. And we're heading in the opposite direction. We're, not, no, we're no longer walking with God, but away from God. We repent and we turn back to God. 
And that's a wonderful picture that we ought to have implanted in our minds. Turn with me to Luke 22. Demonstrating that Luke twenty two thirty one. I want what all I'm showing you here is God's nature and character. It is also evident in the person of Christ that He is both God and man. And in verse thirty one, uh, He tells Simon, "We're not going to look at the context. Do that a little later." Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you as wheat. Verse 32, but I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. I want you to see that merciful. I prayed for you, Peter. I have used my power to put limitations upon how Satan will sift you. I'm not going to let him consume you totally. But when you fall, I'm praying for your restoration even now. Oh, God is merciful. He's kind. And he limits that power and dominion of sin when we fall into it, when we succumb to it, when we, listen guys, when we open ourselves up to it. And we, 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 we cling to it. Our God can't be accused of being the author of sin and evil when our God is the one limiting. He is the one destroying. He is the one bringing us along so that all of that evil is put to death, put away, and cannot have dominion over us. It's quite the opposite. Quite the opposite. The second misconception is that temptation is sin. That the temptation itself is sin. It's not true. You can be tempted and not guilty of sin. Remember, temptation is the solicitation, the provoking to sin. It's the provoking. It's the suggestions. It's the imaginations. It's the intents of the heart. Now that that can come from within us. That is, oh, I would delight. I'd like to do that. I know that breaks God's law. I know that is immoral. I know that is hurtful. But I'd like to do it anyway. That's the flesh. Then you have Satan hurling suggestions. Do you really want to be a slave to God? Righteousness is no fun. Look at the world. They're having fun. You're stuck in church. You're stuck listening to boring sermons. You're stuck listening to somebody preach to you. Mm. There's There's a better way. There's a better way. You don't need all that. You're a good person. James 1.15 I know we're going to be doing a lot of turning in our Bibles, but I think it's good to do so. James 1.15 James lists the process here. Notice what he says in verse 14. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Notice what is coupled with the temptation. 
That is the tempted. He's tempted. He's, he's taken the bait. That's what it's the idea there. Is that of a, of a fish being caught on a hook. The suggestions are the bait. The vain imaginations. The, the hurling of the suggestions. The example of the world calling good evil and evil good. Right? What makes that temptation a sin when our, our own lust rises up and takes the bait? Believes the suggestion. Gives credibility to the suggestion. Gives credibility to the world's practices that are antithetical and immoral in God's sight. How do we do that? By agreement. By agreement. Notice, he says, verse 15, Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. We see this process there. Listen, brothers and sisters. If temptation in and of itself is sin, then Jesus is a sinner because he was tempted. And we looked at Jesus' temptation, and yet he was tempted, yet... He remained sinless. He never took the bait. There was nothing in him that ever desired to break God's law, to disobey God's word, to harm God's glory. He perfectly maintained the glory of his Father, the glory of the kingdom. Thy will be done. Remember what Jesus said? When Satan came to him, Jesus was hungry. He had been fasting for 40 days. He was in a, he was in a, in a, I mean, a deprecated state. I mean, he was in a very weakened, dangerous, physically dangerous state of being. And our cruel tempter says, oh, turn these stones to bread. Feed yourself. Where's your father? And that's not in the text, where's your father? But it's an implication. Take it upon yourself. What did Jesus say? Man is to live by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. See, that's the most important thing. That's more important than physical bread is the word of God. And man's going to live, man, live by the word of God. God. Jesus was sinless. In fact, brothers and sisters, if you go to Ephesians chapter 6, Ephesians chapter 6, we'll see here that the Apostle Paul, in helping to equip the church, tells the church to put on Christ or put on the full armor of God, chapter 6, verse 10, so that we might be able to war against or fight against the devil. Fight against him, not succumb to these temptations. Verse 12, our struggles are not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against powers, against the world forces of darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything to stand firm, stand firm, therefore, having girded up your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, 
In addition to all, take up the shield of faith, which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. That's what it means. Fight it off. Fight off the temptation. There have been a, I believe, a many a saint rendered useless because they believed, oh, I have been tempted. I must not even be a Christian. How can I teach Sunday school? How can I be an example? How can I lead anyone with the gospel? How can I tell anyone about the saving graces of Jesus when I'm tempted so fiercely? Brothers and sisters, you may be in a season of tremendous temptation. Young people often are. Because you are prime targets for Satan. You are tempted with rebellion. You are tempted to rebel against your, your earthly authorities that God's put in your life for your protection. You're tempted sexually. You're tempted uh, in uh, ways of the world to follow after all the glitz and the glamour of this world. You know, there is a biblical truth behind the story Pinocchio. Where did that come from? But notice, he wanted to go to the carnival. And he was told not to go. Don't go. Don't go. But he was enamored with the lights, the festivities. He was enamored with all the fun. And it cost him, didn't it? And it cost him dearly. You see, isn't it, listen to me, isn't it telling how often we say, have fun? Because that's become so primary in our lives. Have fun, have fun, have fun, have fun. Church now is the place where we have to have fun. And if we're not having fun, well, it's not the place that we want to be. So much of our lives have become very entertainment-oriented. Very entertainment-oriented. Now, brothers and sisters, temptation in and of itself is not sin. Second misconception, it's not sin. Daniel was tempted, and he stood fast. Joseph was tempted with Potiphar's wife, and he fled the temptation. Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego was tempted, and they passed the test. I mean, they were tempted to do what? To allow fear to dominate them instead of faith. The Bible doesn't say these words, but it implies this. Joseph, Mary's husband, had a temptation too. What was his temptation? Well, if you go and read the account of Mary and Joseph, the Bible says that Joseph was afraid. And the angel came to him and he says, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Think about Joseph. I'm afraid to take, what stigma will this bring to me? She's pregnant. All of the things that are going to come along with this. And the angel says, oh, Joseph, don't be afraid. Listen to me, brothers and sisters. One of the suggestions one of the ways that we are provoked to disobey and to act in our own authority and accord and strength is for Satan to put fear into our lives. Fear. 
The whole political machine in America is built on fear. Fear of losing something. Or the fear of the terrorists, the fear of the taxes, or the fear of so-and-so being in office, and this fear and that fear. And they, they want to create this, this atmosphere of fear so that we will quit thinking about it and just respond with fear versus faith is the opposite of fear. Trust is the opposite of fearing No more about that. Let's go to our next misconception about temptation. First, or not first, but another misconception is that temptations only come to those who are in a bad place or with bad people. That is, oh, don't go over there and hang out with them. There's temptation over there. That's not that it's not true. There are temptations that come with certain people in certain environments, no doubt about it. But brothers and sisters, if you think that way, then you might fall into the trap of thinking that there are not temptations in other places, such as good places, such as church. Pastors are tempted that when they preach And the church grows to take credit for it. Pastors are tempted that when the church is thriving and and bustling with members and and creating a certain amount of wealth and able to support all, that, that somehow it's due to the working of their own abilities and gifts. That's a temptation. You can have a temptation saying, yes, this church is successful because of our labors and works and our prayer. All of these things, in fact, turn with me to Galatians 6. Right after Corinthians, Galatians chapter 6. Look at verse 1, and I want to just show you how, where Paul says, Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one. Now that each one are, is related to those who are doing the restoring. Okay? That is, we have one who has fallen. We have one who has fallen. And now there are, uh, there are those that are coming to the fallen one. And Paul is saying to them, Now each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. You could think in church environments and situations, here's a restoration, here's counseling. Here's that private confrontation going on to help somebody come through this season of sin and difficulty and failure. And what does Paul say? Be careful because you may be tempted in the process. Satan's there. Satan is there in the ministry provoking and suggesting that somehow the success is all yours. That somehow this person's success or this family's success is due to your advice. Be careful. Be careful. Look at what Paul goes on to write. He says, listen, um, bear one another's burdens and therefore fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks 
Uh, he is something when he is nothing he deceives himself but each one must examine his own work and then he will have reason for boasting in regards to himself alone and will and not in regard to another for each one will bear his own load. I mean Paul is saying listen you must be in the process of a consistent examination of yourself. Hey listen let's go to the opposite. When everything goes bad When everything goes south, when everything looks destitute, when everything looks destroyed, is it the fault of the pastor? Session? Brothers and sisters, there are temptations lying in every corner. Why? Because Satan is always, Satan and his demons are always hurling fiery darts at you making suggestions that you somehow misunderstand God's Word, that you somehow want to disobey God's Word, that it ought to be, you ought to liberate yourself from God's Word. He is going to always attack the Word of God. And that's why you have to be careful. That's why we ought to be knowledgeable, right? We ought to, we ought to know the Word of God. Look at um, 1 Corinthians 10 again. Go back there with me. 1 Corinthians 10. Wow, time is flying, isn't it? Now, notice verse 6. Now, these things happened. That is, that is these temptations, these failures. Now, these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. And he's talking about the children of Israel in the desert. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example and were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages has come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed. He does not fall. Paul is writing. Now notice, where did this immorality take place in the church? Where did this rebellion take place in God's people? Where did all of these things, this idolatry happen? Right in the midst of the covenant people of God. And Paul says, listen, their sins and God's judgment upon their sins was written and it was put down in writing so that you would learn not to do what they did and be tempted in the same way. They tested God. How do, I mean, brothers and sisters, how do we test God? Oh, there are a number of ways, but you can, listen, when we act in such a flagrant way, sin, immoral way, and we just beckon for God's judgment and act as if God's going to wink at it because we're doing all these other good things, we are testing God's justice. And this nation is guilty of testing God. We have all, oh, God bless America. Can we even speak those words today 
without there being blasphemy. Because we've done, listen, we as a nation are calling good evil. We're calling evil good. And there's a temptation. Satan is hurling suggestions at us, you college students. Oh, accept it. Accept it. Accept it. Hey, your family's prudish. Christians are not up with the times. Christianity. It's a dangerous philosophy. It's a philosophy of terrorism. Believe it or not. I didn't make that up. That's actually being said in the public arena. And there's going to be a temptation for us to back away from the teaching and the claims of God and the gospel of Scripture. Why? Because fear is a great motivation to leave something and cling to security. But let me tell you something, brothers and sisters. Satan's going to tell you you're going to have to make yourself safe, but there is only one safe place to be, and I'm going to tell you it's in the hand of God. It's in the hand of God. There's only one safe place your mind and heart need to be, and that's in God's hands. There's only one safe place for your family, and that's in the hands of God. Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego was thrown right in the fiery furnace, and when they looked in there, the fire consumed them, but they said, hey, there's a fourth man in there. It was the angel of the Lord. He said, well, that's a Bible story. That's a children's Bible story. That's another error, fiery error of Satan himself to get you to doubt the narrative of Scripture. That's driven by the theology, and that is this. I will protect my own. I'll be their God. Another misconception. And that is temptation is stronger than the power of God in the Christian. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Go back to that verse again. You can see right there, that verse would not be able to be written in Holy Scripture if we did not have the real ability to fight against temptation. That God in His faithfulness has provided a way of escape and absolutely mitigates the temptation itself so that it don't consume us. And you got Job as an example. Though God allowed for Satan, the great tempter and provoker, to go to Job, he mitigated the temptation. He mitigated the power of Satan in Job's life, and God was his healer and restorer. And believe it or not, it did have a negative effect upon Job. There was a time when Job, who was covered from head to toe with sores and boils, he had had all he could take, and he cursed the day he was born. Pain is a great, great weakener of the soul. And Satan wore him down. And he had just cursed the day he was born. And God in his mercy came to Job, corrected him, and restored him in the end. He restored him in the end. All throughout Scripture we see that The God in us is more powerful than sin itself. Abraham, 
who had fallen many times in Genesis 22 comes to the place in his life and experience that when God told him to offer up his son Isaac upon the altar of sacrifice without hesitation, without wavering, Abraham rose up, took his servants and his son and went to the place of sacrifice. And he lifted up that knife and he was going to sacrifice his son. And the Bible says that he did so in faith, knowing that God could raise him up again. Don't you think Satan was hurling those fiery darts at Abraham going, wait a minute, this is the son that you've waited on for 25 years? Come on. You're going to do what? Your neighbors are going to think you're crazy. What is your wife Sarah going to think? No, the Bible says by faith, Abraham trusted God and believed that God could raise the dead. Brothers and sisters, you may struggle with a special temptation. You might. Confession of faith even speaks of special temptation. Temptations. And it could be materialism, it could be sexual, it could be power, it could be um, it could be any number of things. The Bible, I mean, Paul talks about that those who seek to be rich have fallen into temptation of idolatry of riches and have fallen away from the faith. The cares of this world have caused many people to leave the church. The cares of this world. Persecutions of the church have caused many to say, I don't want it. I can't live with it. I have to leave. There may be some special temptation that you are, like Paul, handed. Don't let it Don't let it have its way with you. God who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Your faith overcomes sin and overcomes the world. But Satan will use that in your life to render you useless to the church. To render you helpless in the spiritual regard to your family. He'll use that special temptation and and plague to solicit inactivity, to solicit passiveness, to solicit an apathy to the things of God. He will use that special temptation in your life to render you helpless in in your Christian walk. Don't let Him. Don't let that temptation render you hopeless and helpless and joyless. Know this, brothers and sisters. That's a misconception. Oh, I struggle with this. So what? So what? Rise up, Christian. Rise up. That leads us to that, this, that last one, falling into grievous temptations can forever make you useless to the kingdom of God. Not true. Not true. Peter denied the Lord three times 
We don't have time to go to that passage of Scripture. But our Lord goes to him in John 22, John 21, and restores him. I'm going to tell you, brothers and sisters, if you have fallen into temptation, you're here this morning, and you've, your mind is eaten up with sin. Nobody knows it but you and the Lord. You don't have to stay there. You are still the son and daughter of God in Christ. And you are precious in His sight. And He cares for you. He doesn't... Listen. Imagine Peter seeing the Lord come to him on the beach. He denied Him three times. And Jesus asking him the question, Do you love me? And Peter saying the first time, Well, you, you know I love you. If you love me, feed my sheep. Do you love me, Peter? Second time, Lord, you, you know all. You know, you know I love you. Well, feed my sheep, Peter. What's going through Peter's head? I'm unworthy. I don't deserve this. I don't deserve this kindness I'm receiving. I don't deserve this mercy I'm receiving. And yet all the while Jesus is standing before Peter going, Peter, do you love me? And then Peter, it came to him. He says, Lord, you know. You know all things. What Peter was saying is, Lord, you know I love you, but you know I'm a weak man. I have feet of clay. I have feet of clay. And I succumbed to temptation. And I didn't watch and pray like you told me to. I thought I was better and stronger. I thought I was a super Christian, Lord. And I was humbled in the dirt by a small girl who challenged me. And challenged me with the most precious thing in my life, which is my, pres my profession and walk with you. is the most precious thing in my life. And I threw it away for a moment. Brothers and sisters, read the book of Acts. Read those first ten chapters, and guess who you're going to see in front of those ten chapters? You're going to see the Apostle Peter leading the way, preaching the gospel, standing before the Pharisees, being whipped. Them telling him, boy, you better not preach that gospel around here anymore. And he says, hey, I can do nothing but obey God. That's a man. That's a man that's come to know the mercy and grace of God. Listen, brothers and sisters, don't succumb to the idea and the fallacy that just because you have fallen into some great temptation, you can't be restored and made useful again. That's a misconception. Because we have men and women throughout the Bible where God has restored them to great use. A couple of things, and, and again, trying to be so mindful of what we're doing. How do we remedy this? Well, Jesus teaches us to pray in Matthew 6, right? He says, lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. Well, we need to pray that. We need to pray that our Lord would mitigate, keep us from it, but if, if He so chooses to allow it, and we do succumb to it, and we make the decision to fall into it, 
And we, we listen to the suggestions and the solicitations of the world and the Satan and even our own sinful flesh that he won't leave us there. That he'll rescue us and he'll restore us and that he'll come to us. But we can pray several things. First of all, Jesus told his disciples, watch and pray that you will not be led into temptation. Pray for what? Well, pray that you would be able to see your heart for what it is. Pray that the word of God would be made effectual. Pray for your preacher. Pray for the word. Pray for the means of grace. Pray that you would take delight in them. Pray that you would practice what you hear. Pray for all of these things. Ask God for them. Pray for understanding. How can you obey what you don't understand? And if you don't care to seek the understanding of it, then you can't practice it. But also learn, brothers and sisters, to tell yourself these things and to tell it to the devil. And I'm not playing. I'm not joking. That you belong to Christ. You belong to Christ. He shed his blood for you. He washed you from your sins. He made you the son and daughter of God Almighty. You know what? Act like it. Act like you're the son and daughter of Christ. Act like you've been born again. Remember your baptism, what it means to be washed from your sins? To be made new and fresh and a new creation again. Remember, in fact, the confession of faith says, hey, in the midst of temptation, remember your baptism and improve it. What does it mean by improve it? It means make the sign of your baptism, the cleansing from sin, a reality in your life. Remember, I've been washed. I've been made clean. I have believed in Christ. I am His. He is mine. He has broken the dominion of sin. He has washed me from my sins. He's made me clean, not me myself. I belong to Him. I do not belong to you, Satan. And I don't belong to your kingdom of darkness. And I don't belong to the dominion and power of sin. I belong to the kingdom of light and righteousness. Because Jesus is my Lord and Savior. Preach to yourself. Preach to yourself. Tell yourself the truth. Remind yourself of who you belong to. What's really happened in your life. And guess what? He'll flee from you. He'll flee from you. Resist the devil, Peter says, and he will flee from you. How did Jesus rebuff Satan? With the truth. The truth. It's the truth, brothers and sisters, that will set you free. Let's pray.